Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today are Deputy Editor of Spiked, Tom Slater. Hello. And no Ella Whelan this week, so we're joined by Spiked Editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Coming up on the show today, Shamima Begum, Jussie Smollett and the Anti-Brexit Independent Group. I think a lot of people should have like sympathy towards me for everything I've been through, you know. We cannot ignore the threat posed by those who chose to leave Britain to engage with the conflict in Syria or Iraq. Quite simply, if you back terror, there must be consequences. He has no proof that I'm a threat, other than that I was an ISIS, but that's it. The Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, has revoked the citizenship of Shamima Begum. The ISIS bride from Bethnal Green was discovered in a Syrian refugee camp by the Times. She has given multiple interviews pleading to come back home to Britain. Tom, can you tell us a bit more about this case? Yes, yeah, so Shamima Begum, for the, just to remind people, was one of three girls who left Bethnal Green in East London, who were aged about 15, 16, back in 2015, um, who left for Syria, effectively, to go and become jihadi brides. The other two girls were Amira Abbasi and um, Khadiza Sultana. Khadiza, I think, has already been killed in an airstrike, but these two were still there, just no one had heard of them. That was until last week when someone from the Times um, actually discovered, came across Shamima Begum in a refugee camp in northern Syria. She'd been split apart from her husband, who was a Dutch jihadist. She said that she had um, lost two children during the course of her time under the Islamic State, um, was pregnant with another. She's now given birth to that child and that she wanted to come home. The striking thing about that interview, of course, was that while she was making this appeal for... um, sympathy and for Britain to take her back it was also quite clear that she hadn't repudiated any of her views any of her support for the Islamic State she said that she was unfazed by the sight of severed heads because they deserved it effectively Mm. as unbelievers and in a series of interviews since has not covered herself in glory at all I mean she's effectively said that the Manchester bombing which obviously claimed the lives of many young girls in Manchester back in 2017, was justified because of the um, foreign policy of the West, etc., um, and has effectively appealed for sympathy while at the same time showing, well, no one should show her any sympathy. But it's, of course, stirred up this huge discussion. What do you do with people who are returning from Syria, whether they be jihadists or jihadi brides? Um, is Sajid Javid's move to strip her of her citizenship, is it legally or morally defensible? But I think the broader picture is that it's really exposed. It's exposed this kind of chasm, basically, between mm. ordinary people who effectively see Shamima as a traitor and this very kind of chin-stroking discussion amongst the commentariat, which seems to focus around the legal specifics um, and a lot of complicated arguments around citizenship, when I think that main moral imperative, is, which is to keep Britain safe against this person who effectively joined a group that declared war on it, seems to be most ordinary people's main concern in this. Brendan? Yeah, I really agree with that. I think the 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 most striking thing about the whole Shamima Begum affair is what it tells us about Britain, in fact. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very interesting. How did she live for four years? What did she do? Um, did she have a Yazidi slave, which may well have been the case? Uh, there's another case of a, an American jihadi bride who recently gave an interview to CNN in which she said that she and her husband, who was from Morocco, bought uh, a Yazidi woman to work in their house and a Yazidi child to clean their house. So um, there are interesting insights into the depravity of the Islamic State coming out, um, which I think is something worth discussing. But I think the what this Shamima Begum case most clearly points to is just uh, an absolute, as Tom says, a chasm-sized 
difference of opinion and more importantly difference of morality mm. within Britain itself between on the one hand ordinary people who are pretty certain that she is a traitor that she betrayed her nation that she is a pretty wicked person because of the choices she made and then on the other side the kind of commentaria and even sections of the political class itself who are not only speaking in very legalistic terms, um, but also seem to have a, a real strong element of sympathy for her. Mm. And they're talking about her as a victim of grooming, yeah. as a child. She was 15 when she left. She didn't really know what she was doing. She was brainwashed. She was, you know, they're talking of her as if she is the victim, uh, rather than the, the, the thousands and thousands of men, women, and children who were slaughtered by the barbaric movement that she went to join. Mm -hmm. So utterly uh, perverse situation really suggests that um, Britain, well, the British elites have become completely unanchored from any sense of morality or from any sense of moral perspective. So I think what it's told us about the UK is, is really revealing and incredibly chilling. It looks to me like there has been more of an outpouring of sympathy for this woman from those sections of the media and political elites than there ever was for the Coptic Christians in Egypt and elsewhere who were butchered by ISIS or even for the Yazidi women whose plight did actually make a big breakthrough in the West, uh, for the Kurds uh, who have been at war with uh, ISIS. You, you get a sense that, you know, Guardian headlines, which are demanding that we show compassion mm. to this British woman who defected to a neo-fascistic Islamist death cult, seem to me to be more generous than anything they ever said about some of the people who were butchered by ISIS. I mean, I was shocked to read one, you know, Guardian article saying that Shamima was a victim of racism. Yeah. That our reaction, that the public's reaction to hate this vile, evil woman was an indication that we were the bad people, you know, that there was something wrong with us. I mean, it's it's just so completely bizarre. And, and you know, the I think it was the Sky News reporter who, after speaking to Shamima Begum, was, said he was struck by her... Um, her sort of fortitude, her the fact that she seemed very unfazed, and many people say say this is a product of her being brainwashed. Whereas most normal people, well, certainly I thought this is because she's a complete psychopath. Yeah, and she's convinced. I mean, that's the other thing. Is that if we're going to talk about, you know, the idea that this is effectively racism, why people have no sympathy for her. No, first of all, because it's about what she did. It's about mm. the organisation that she joined, which is not just her running away to some kind of other country. This is an organisation which is hellbent on the destruction of the West and Western values. It's a supremacist death cult. Mm. The idea that this is the same as her just running away to, you know, join some sort of faraway group is entirely different. And I think also there's a really kind of Im implicit bigotry in assuming that she didn't know what she was doing. Yeah. And not only does that fly in the face of the fact that her and her two friends from Bethnal Green were, you know, straight A students, that they clearly sought out ISIS mm. propaganda and then decided to make their way to Turkey and then into Syria. But it's also flying in the face of what she has been saying this past yeah. week, in which she has said, I made this decision and she knew what she was doing, if now she regrets the fact that she's there instead of here. And I think now this argument, particularly over the last 24 or 48 hours, has boiled down to this question of Sajid Javid stripping her mm. of her citizenship on the basis, seemingly, that because her parents are Bangladeshi, she might be able to claim Bangladeshi citizenship, therefore she wouldn't be rendered stateless. Um, it's interesting that Bangladesh have already come out quite rightly, it's fair to say, and said she's nothing to do with us. Um, and it has turned up this discussion, which I think is a fair one to have, which is talking about is this does this effectively create two tiers of citizen, etc, etc. Mm. Now, I think it's worth noting that it's quite clear 
that Sajid Javid has pursued this legal course largely, I think, for reasons of making a point. You know, yeah. I mean, it's been, it was estimated in 2017 that as many as 400 jihadists had probably made it back. These have not turned into these big cases. It was mm. because, ironically, that she decided to give this interview to ask to be brought back that has actually probably led to her being treated yeah. in this kind of much more harsh way. Um, there's a lot of speculation that this will probably be challenged in the courts, but at least someone like Javid can claim he made that stand. So I think that really this is an attempt to make a kind of technical fix to, to make a point. But I think it's also, also worth pointing out, and that as robust as we've been on spikes about Shamima this past week, is that we don't support the idea that she should be stripped of her citizenship because yeah. it effectively is trying to keep her at arm's length. It's trying to say that she is not our problem when fundamentally she was radicalised in the UK. She is our problem to deal with now does that mean that we should roll out the red carpet does that mean that we should put people's lives at risk to try and bring her home absolutely not but at the same time you can be quite clear that this woman is effectively a traitor and we should work out how to deal with people such as this especially as more and more people do return from Syria as the caliphate continues to collapse whilst at the same time recognizing that this very bombastic but kind of arm's length approach of the government is not only a liberal and could have dangerous consequences but is also a refusal to deal with that rather than whilst just trying to look tough effectively. Yeah I mean that's the paradox of it isn't it it's at once authoritarian and at the same time um, evasive yeah and you know in the same year, Tom, as you said, 2017, when 400 jihadis are estimated to have come back, they used this power on 104 different people. And, you know, I think it is slightly alarming that Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, has the sort of unilateral right to um, revoke citizenship in, in effect. And, you know, that is, that's disturbing on one level. At the same time, obviously, I have no sympathy for Shamima Begum. And um, Brendan, what do you make of this? I, I think I, I agree with, with Tom that I think it, it, it has the appearance of a kind of strong, determined act by the Home Secretary. You know, we're not going to take any crap from these people. We're going to keep them out of the country. But in fact, it's driven by a kind of institutional cowardice and an unwillingness to take responsibility for these people who stabbed Britain in the back and who mm. betrayed the British people, in essence, by going to join an organisation which has killed many British people and which is quite clearly an enemy of Western civilization, enlightenment values, democracy, freedom, all those things that we hold dear or should hold dear. So it's, it, it, you know, the, the um, revoking of her citizenship and other people's citizenship is really just a way of saying we don't know how to deal with traitors. We don't know what to do about this modern phenomenon. But, you know, going back to something you said, Fraser, I was also really struck by this idea that, you know, what's been done to Shamima is kind of driven by racism and so on. And mm. it really is quite revealing. It really suggests that the old Ali G line, you know, is it because I is black, mm. which, you know, Ali G used to do as a kind of mick take out of that, that tendency among young minority people to kind of play the victim card very swiftly. Sasha Baron Cohen probably would not get away with that today. Now we have, th that's become a real thing. Is it because I is Muslim? That is mm. effectively what Shamima and lots of her cheerleaders are saying. And you want to say, no, it's not because you're Muslim that you're being treated in this way. It's because you joined an Islamic death cult which cuts people's heads off and slaughters Kurds and is one of the most barbaric armies in living memory. That's why this is happening to you. So you, you know, they really need to quit the victim act. Mm. But what's revealing about that 
is it really suggests if you look at if you watch her interviews and she's done quite a few now since she was found in the camp by the times she plays the victim card a lot she says this is unjust i think people should have sympathy yeah. for mm. me i everything didn't know I've what i've been uh, through everything i've been through i didn't know what i was doing she even uses that kind of you know oprah winfrey language that you know i don't regret coming to isis because it's made me stronger as <laughs> if she's been on a gap year or working for six months in <laughs> australia or india or something um so it, but what's what's revealing about that is it suggests that one of the drivers among those people who either join ISIS or flirt with Islamist radicalism in the UK is the culture of victimhood and mm. this sense that they are hated and this sense that they have grown up in an Islamophobic society in this sense that everyone's out to get them. You know, poor little me. If you look at the Libyan, Libyan British guy who blew up Manchester Arena, he was convinced Islamophobia was widespread. If you look at the people behind 7-7 in 2005, they were utterly convinced that British society hated Muslims and wanted to conquer Islamic lands and so on. So I think what Shamima's case and what her interviews really point to is, is the way in which it isn't islamophobia that causes radicalism but it's arguable that one of the potential causes of islamic radicalism is society's obsession with islamophobia and the way in which the media class and the political class in particular are constantly pushing this victim narrative and effectively saying to muslims mainstream society hates you white people are racist and britain is a pretty awful place and then lo and behold, some of them turn around and say, OK, I'm going to declare war on Britain. So I think she there's a broader thing to look into here, which is the way in which she speaks to the really worrying interplay between the Western politics of victimhood and Islamic radicalism. And I think there's a close relationship between those two things. I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Back in January, Jussie Smollett, an actor in the hit TV series Empire, said he was the victim of a racist and homophobic attack. He alleged that his attackers poured bleach on him and tied a noose around his neck. Now Smollett has been charged with a crime for filing a false police report. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit more about this? So for those who haven't been following this, it really is a fascinating story, both in terms of what Smollett originally alleged and how his kind of case has unravelled ever since. So as you were saying, back in January, he claimed that on a, about 2am in Chicago, after he'd kind of gone out to get a sandwich after coming back home very late, that he was accosted by these two men who were wearing ski masks, who um, verbally abused him, racial abuse, homophobic abuse, um, they attacked him, they put this noose around his neck, they poured bleach on him, as you say, 
um, and that they said to him, this is MAGA country, you know, so this was very much posited as a kind of product of Trump's America, of this racism in America. And he very quickly got, understandably, I guess, a lot of sympathy, you know, on social media from very leading political figures, people like Kamala Harris and Cory mm. Booker, who are currently running for the Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, Nancy Pelosi weighed in as well. It was taken as a clear-cut case, but I think there were a lot of people who were sceptical, arguably, from the off, many of whom kept quiet. But nevertheless, there were parts of it which didn't really seem to add up. You know, first of all, the idea that there were kind of Trump fans marauding around Chicago, which voted 83% for Hillary Clinton in the middle of the night, looking specifically for this one actor from Empire, <laughs> that they would recognise him at the drop of a hat, seems mm. to a lot of people quite suspect. The fact that they were carrying this noose around with them at all times in mm. case they wanted to launch this kind of attack. Just things started to raise questions, but it was very quickly shut down any kind of suggestion that things might not be all that they seemed. But again, as the police started to investigate this more and there were leaks from the Chicago PD out to kind of local Chicago news, which eventually drifted up to the national um, news organisations, that the story didn't start to make sense. The two people who were being um, interviewed as persons of interest turned out to be black Nigerians. Mm. They also turned out to be um, associates and actually had worked for Smollett as his kind of personal trainer, had been extras on Empire. So this started to question the narrative mm. increasingly. It was eventually revealed that they were actually had been the ones who had purchased this rope. And also just this week, um, Smollett has been charged with a federal crime of, of filing a false report in this instance and i think it the thing that it's really just brought to the fore is that it just whilst we're still waiting for all of the facts to come out and for this um particular investigation to bear itself out the purchase and the weight that kind of victimhood is dealt in the mm. current discussion how that is really supercharged by the discussion about how trump has supposedly overnight transformed america even its some of its most liberal cities into this incredibly bigoted harmful place the willingness of people to not even use some level of scepticism or some level of let's just sit back and wait for the facts to come out that even leading political figures jumped on this um, very willingly from the off without knowing very much I think tells us a lot about where America is at, at the moment. Brennan? Yeah I, I agree with that I think um, you know it was initially the, the supposed attack when people thought it might actually have happened was was talked up as a kind of indictment of Trump's America but mm. it's now looking more like it's an indictment of uh, supposedly progressive politics or what passes tragically for progressive politics these days which is the culture of victimhood this um kind of very in needy insatiable desire to be viewed as a victim to be seen as a vulnerable person to be seen as someone who is a target of hatred and so on um and i think that is one of the most destructive forces in uh, in identity politics this constant search for victimhood, this, and it makes perfect sense in some ways that someone would even launch an attack against themselves because modern society, modern Western society, valorizes the victim. Mm. The victim is the most celebrated person. Uh, victimhood is the means through which you kind of gain media affirmation and social capital and even state resources. Uh, which is why you have all these various different identity groups and minority groups constantly trawling for proof that people hate them, for proof of hate crimes, for evidence that they are oppressed and hated and, and so on. So uh, the, the victim industry has unleashed a really destructive force in society, which is to convince certain groups they are victims and by the same token to convince to convince us that society is full of hateful people. Uh, and I just think the Smollett case looks to me to be an extreme example 
off that desire to be viewed as a victim to such an extent that you would even hurt yourself to try and prove that you are part of this narrative. It's it's perverse, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense. It also really illustrates what how powerful a hold this narrative of Trump's racist America yeah. is. I mean, it only it came only days after the um, incident with the Covington Catholic High School yeah, kids, yeah. where you know it basically been demonstrated that the narrative got before the facts. It was simply assumed that these young boys were racist because they were wearing MAGA hats and they were, had a confrontation with a Native American. And, and then, it, you know, when the facts emerge, it turns out to be completely false. But what's extraordinary is that many of the people who have come out and said what they said about this case, whether it's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yeah. who insisted that it's not possibly a hate crime, it is a hate crime, um, whether it's, you know, Cory Booker, as you alluded to, who actually used the incident to push for further legislation, yeah. even though we now know it's false. You know, he was confronted by um, by news anchors and they said, you know, well, what do you make of the, the latest you know developments? And he still wouldn't admit fault. You know, he tr- again trotted out this narrative of um, increasing hate crime and said, well, you know, we have a big problem with white supremacist terrorism. I mean, even the facts are not enough to <laughs> yeah. disturb the to disturb this pervasive narrative. I mean, we're just, you know, minutes away from someone saying that, yeah, he probably did staged this but at least he's raised an important issue that almost seems to be the take (laughs) that we're getting to and it's so dangerous and destructive especially when you are at a time in which there is kind of heightened racial tension in america i think that's very fair to say i'm not saying it's about to spill over into violence or anything like that but there's a lot of concern particularly amongst ethnic minority communities g'd up by stories like this Mm. that america is a far more bigoted place than it actually is um and to kind of go about this in the way that you can almost have kind of alternative facts on both sides alternative narratives no willingness to call people out or call yourself out effectively for saying that you got this particular one wrong and there's something bad about that is incredibly destructive and i think just coming back to the point that um brendan was making it's like it's what's the fascinating question if and we should say if because the investigations are still ongoing it does turn out that smollett effectively staged this attack Mm. for one reason or another is what he could possibly have had to gain from it and i think it does speak to the um currency of victimhood that this would be something that he would be he would willingly make himself a victim in order to kind of enhance his status in a weird mm. sort of way yeah. and john mcwater wrote a really interesting piece for the atlantic about this where he compared the, the smollett hoax to the tuana brawley case back in 1987 which is a horrible case of a 15 year old girl who goes missing she then shows up kind of in the woods covered in feces racial epithets written across her claiming that she had been um raped by a group of white men al sharpton and various activists kind of surround her and kind of push this campaign the story eventually unravels, unfortunately, and it turns out that what many people believe happened, at least, is the fact that um, she was effectively trying to cover for the fact that she disappeared for a while, had a slightly abusive stepfather, so in yeah. concocted this story, it all got out of control, etc. He makes the point that, first of all, she was 15 years old, Smollett is 36 years old, mm. and second of all, she did this seemingly to avoid a kind of raffle stepfather. He did it to make himself yeah. look good yeah. on some level. That is a terrifying kind of situation to be in where the culture of victimology is so intense Mm. that someone would go to such lengths, put so much on the line, I think it's fair to say, um, and also almost not seemingly feel that bad about um, distorting the truth in order to either make a political point or enhance their stature in a grim sort of way. Absolutely. And the other other thing I think is revealed by all this is that a lot of people talk about Trump's prejudices, which are unquestionably serious prejudices, particularly against Mexicans and also potentially against other groups as well, a kind of racial prejudice that does come from the Trump camp. 
Um, but I think what this case points to the, the the instant nature of the belief, the way in which it was con- it was very early on, it was weaved into a narrative about the problem of Trump's America, the problem of um, MAGA people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people who wear those caps or people who basically people who voted for Trump. There's, and you, this also speaks to the Covington boys scandal is this idea that these people are just scum. You know, anyone who voted for Trump or anyone who wears that hat or anyone who likes Trump or anyone who doesn't like Hillary are basically just scum. Uh, They're violent. They're prejudiced. Um, We should fear them. Everyone should fear them. And it actually is very reminiscent of what used to be said about young black people in America and also in the United Kingdom, which is that they are muggers, they're carjackers, they're dangerous, uh, the kind of thing Trump himself said about the supposed rapists in Central Park, which is this kind of racially infused idea that if you are from a particular section of society, you're a dangerous person. What we now see, I think, amongst the liberal elite in the US, the kind of East Coast elites, is a similar view, but projected instead onto kind of rednecks and white people and white youths and especially white youths who like Trump. So I think this case and the instant nature of the kind of belief in it and the pushing of it as a kind of evidence of America's rottenness actually has exposed a lot of quite racialized um, and class-based prejudices among people like Ocasio-Cortez and that section of society who now very clearly look down their noses at a huge swathe of American society. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. At the time of recording, eight Labour MPs and three Conservatives have left their parties to join a new centrist grouping in the House of Commons. The independent group has no policies and no identifiable principles other than that they are opposed to Brexit and want to see a second EU referendum. Tom, can you tell us a bit more about what's been happening this week (laughs) in British politics? It's been an interesting one. So um, on Monday, word got out that a group of Labour MPs were going to make a statement about their futures. Um, it turned out to be seven MPs, most prominent among them being Chakramuna, former shadow business minister, as well as Luciana Berger, someone who um, has been at war with Corbyn's Labour, not only over his Brexit policy, but also over the issue of anti-Semitism. She's received a lot of anti-Semitic abuse, as well as people like Chris Leslie, who's been a kind of permanent critic of Corbyn since the beginning. They announced that they weren't really starting a party. It was this kind of going to be this independent grouping mm. in Parliament. But as you say, they had seemingly no policies, no idea, actually openly eschewed the idea that they would have a clear organisation or <laughs> manifesto <laughs> at this point, that they were just seeing how things would develop. But what was quite clear is that this was about Brexit. This, mm. was, a, this was about forming an anti-Brexit grouping. By Wednesday, not only had another Labour MP joined them, but as you say, three Tory backbenchers, Anna Subri, Heidi Allen and Sarah Wollaston, all of them Remainers um, who are agitating for a second referendum claim that their party has been taken over by kind of blue kip, this kind of right wing <laughs> resurgence in their um, party and that they were all going to sit as part of this 
grouping. Um, I think there's so much to talk about it, but I think one of the fascinating things is the kind of outsized reaction that it has caused. You know, yeah. most of these people do not have a national profile. Mm. There's been a lot of comparisons to the SDP in 1981, mm. the so-called Gang of Four breaking from the Labour Party to set up this alternative to an increasingly left-wing Labour at the time. But, you know, those people were incredibly prominent politicians. There were people like Roy Jenkins, who was a hugely transformative Home Secretary. You know, the, none of them have that kind of intellectual heft or just national stature. And I think the... What are you saying about Mike Gapes? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So this is the kind of situation we're in where... Does this change any of the kind of arithmetic in Parliament around Brexit? Definitely not. These people are going to vote where, the way they were going to vote anyway. But the one thing you can safely say is that the outsized reaction to them from sections of the British press, who, as Owen Jones pointed out on Twitter, are basically the main constituency for this kind <laughs> of organisation, um, just goes to show how out of whack politics is with public opinion. Because, yes, we are looking and hoping and thinking of potential realignments to come but a kind of you know Blairite Cameroon tribute act that's what very few people want it seems I mean it, it was very funny I was watching on, on Newsnight this week they they interviewed Anna Subri and you know she was asked what what are the policies what are the principles and she said well it's almost so obvious that I can't express them <laughs> so she couldn't obviously couldn't name a single thing that they just, were I re- re- at the press conference I remember Heidi Allen saying it's about putting people before politics it's about meeting someone and say how's your nan doing this is <laughs> oh how thin God. Oh, this kind of stuff it's out you know it's outrageous on many levels but tom's right and and some other people have pointed this out too it's entirely about brexit yeah it is completely and utterly head to toe about brexit and on one level you want to say you know this independent group are a pretty r- repulsive gang of chances <laughs> because um you know it's, it's it's so obviously a party of hypocrites and liars. I mean, they are liars, yeah. right? Anna Subri said after the referendum that she would respect the result. Now she is campaigning for a second vote. Sarah Wollaston, the other Tory who joined, said the same thing. Heidi Allen, there's now a clip going around of Heidi saying, you know, we've got to respect the result. This mm. is what people mm. want. We're, at the last general election. Yeah, at the general it. election in order to get her seat back in, in the House of Commons. I mean, these are, it's amazing how much we're putting up with in politics at the moment. Yeah. It's simply amazing because I can't remember any time in my lifetime when politics has been so stuffed with people who lie and make things up and have absolutely no principles and are willing to hoodwink the public in such a grotesque way. The three Tories who joined, if you look at their voting record, they voted for the referendum to take place. Mm. They voted for the triggering of Article 50 after the referendum. They all said on record that they would respect the result because we're a democracy. And they were all returned to Parliament in 2017 on the basis of a manifesto that said we'll leave the single market and the customs union. Now they turn around and say we're not doing any of that and we're going to devote all our energy to making sure it doesn't happen. Mm. Um, and we're not going to have a by-election to, yeah. to get, get back into the commons so that's uh, i think it was tim montgomery who said it's a form of political fraud Mm. that they are that they have their positions in the commons on a fraudulent basis and that's incredibly serious so we, we should take this seriously at the same time as me thinking they are really a horrible group of people at the same time it is worth remembering that they are only a more explicit and now separatist expression of what's happening across the commons. And the really alarming thing right now, if you think about it, is apart from the DUP, every party in the House of Commons doesn't want Brexit. You know, the Tories and Labour say they do, but actually they're campaigning for Remain by another name and everyone knows that's what they're doing. Uh, And all the other parties are implacably opposed to Brexit. So we have a, 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 a House of Commons 
that is full of political parties and political actors who are completely at loggerheads with the public opinion and are conspiring to prevent public opinion from being acted upon. So the crisis in British politics is really deep and profound. And I think if the creation of the independent group makes more people realise that, that Mm. will at least be one good thing about this. I mean, we have, you know, wanted for a very long time for the two main parties Mm. to fracture and and rupture. But what's always disappointing is that, you know, I suppose the MPs want a new centrist party. That seems to be the only thing that they're interested in. Whereas the people out there want new parties to deliver Brexit, to, you know, better represent them. While they're being softballed in the broadsheets and lots of people in SW1 are very excited about them, I don't think that they have any purchase. Oh, it's delusional. That's the other thing about it. But but they also, they know it because they're not going to, that's why they're not going to stand for by-election. Exactly. Although there is an element in them where they do, you do actually think they genuinely think this will kind of congeal into some sort of coherent party and that Mm. they've actually got a chance. I I can't work out if it's entirely cynical or they do deep down actually believe that this is going to happen because as, you know, this is something that, Matt Goodwin points out all the time on Twitter, if there is a gap for a new party in British politics, it's for a kind of more pro-Brexit one, you know, someone yeah. who could fuse together those kind of, that coalition that emerged at the referendum, which was between kind of social conservatives and people who'd previously voted Labour, as well as kind of some these new kind of different factions which had emerged. That's quite clearly there, even amongst a lot of Remainers, you know, they're not centrists in the kind of Heidi Allen mould, you know, it's something like 75% of people are concerned about immigration, the idea that they're going to vote for some kind of pro-free movement party. Now, none of this is to say that you shouldn't stick to your principles, you shouldn't take up on popular causes, etc. But the idea that they're putting out, which is that this is what millions of people are voting for, is absolutely ridiculous and really speaks to the group thing, not just around politicians, but around the Westminster set Mm. more generally. Um, And just coming back to what Brendan said, I think what this has shown, as well as what some other Brexit stories this week have really demonstrated, is that Remainers lie through their teeth and they spin and they obfuscate. This week started with the the Honda story, of course, in which you had various prominent Remainers insisting that the very sad news that Honda were planning to close this big plant um, in Swindon was definitely to do with Brexit, even in the face of the claims of Honda themselves who said they had nothing to do with Brexit. And now you have all of these claims coming from the independent group. For instance, that press conference that Subri and Alan and Wollaston gave where they were talking about that there was some sort of UKIP entryism. There is zero Mm. evidence that that has taken place. Um, And it's also quite strange, even though I'm not a Conservative, for people, Subri aside really, who have joined the Conservative Party fairly recently, insisting that it's not their party because it's not David Cameron leading it anymore. (laughs) Very, very strange. So the fact that they can effectively delude themselves, make stuff up on the fly, pretend that there's far more interest Mm. in this than there is, whilst at the same time avoiding by-elections, I think proves on some level how willfully post-truth a lot of these people are as well. (laughs) And one one final thing to add to that is is about their corruption of political language, which Mm. I think is unforgivable, because they're, they're the independent group is using the language of change change politics people want change we are going to bring change uh, which is another lie because that they are in many instances the most explicit expression of a desire to hold on to the status quo a status quo which is clearly falling apart whereas the real momentum for change is coming from the mass vote for brexit the thing that they want to kill off so i think one of the things that has got to be said against these people is uh, and to all politicians if you're serious about change then give us the radical change that we demanded in our millions in 2016, which is to upend the entire nature of modern British politics and remove us from the European Union. That's the one thing none of them is willing to do, uh, but it's the one thing that we have to insist that they do. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. 
We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.